the old pilot's plane tires. Terminal velocity. It takes about 12 seconds for the human body to reach terminal velocity. In that time, it will have travelled around 1,500 feet and be doing some 120 miles an hour. That's nearly 200 kilometers per hour. At that speed, a person will see the Earth's surface approach them at 177 feet or 54 meters every second. In pilot speak, that's over 10,600 feet per minute. So in the short time that I've been speaking, they will have plummeted over 5,000 feet. Of course, the human body isn't a rigid object that will fall at a constant speed. If someone streamlines their falling posture, it's possible to exceed terminal velocity. Speed skydivers have reached upwards of 330 miles per hour, 530 kilometers per hour, considerably faster than the fastest bird of prey, the peregrine falcon, which can only reach 200 miles per hour. If you're not too worried about reaching the full value of terminal velocity, since your acceleration isn't a constant, but follows an asymptotic curve, in a mere three seconds you can cover 150 feet, which will put you at 50% of your final speed. Even during a small fall, you will accelerate very quickly and be travelling at quite a rate of knots when you reach terra firma. Falling is the second leading cause of accidental death worldwide and merely falling off your feet to the ground can be fatal. However, on average, 50% of people die if they fall from 48 feet, about 14.6 meters. Falls from more than 60 feet, 18.3 meters, are almost uniformly lethal. But don't worry too much, there are plenty of other ways to die before you get to falling, as it only accounts for 1.25% of all causes of death. Your chances of dying by falling depends a lot on variables such as how you land, head first is not recommended, and up to a point, what you land on. Surfaces that will deform and absorb the energy of your fall are good, but some, like water, can only do so much, and if you're travelling at great speed, it literally can't get out of the way quickly enough. If you've died falling, it's most likely to have been from a head injury damaging your brain, and if that doesn't get to you, then you'll probably go from internal bleeding, from organ damage or broken bones, particularly the pelvis. If you've survived the impact, it's important to get to hospital quickly before your injuries prove to be, if you'll excuse the pun, your downfall. If you've fallen from above 1,500 feet, it doesn't really matter whether you started at 1,500 or 15,000 feet. You're going to hit the ground at more or less the same speed. However, there is a certain cachet in being the person who fell the furthest and survived. Before we get on to the current Guinness World Record holder, who was presented her certificate by none other than Paul McCartney... Beatles, I note, can live through a fall from almost any height, let's take a look at others who have taken notable falls and lived to tell the tale.
I've already talked about one remarkable young lady, Julianne Kupka, in my tale, The Christmas Angels. Surviving a fall of around 10,000 feet, following the disintegration of the Lockheed Electra she was flying in was only part of her story. Badly injured, it took ten days for her to escape the dangers of the Amazon rainforest and reach help, all achieved at the age of only seventeen. Living through the initial fall was probably due to her being thrown from the aircraft, still secured to a row of three seats, which may have slowed her descent and given an element of cushioning and protection when she crashed through the canopy of trees. The thick foliage at her landing spot would also have helped to lessen the impact. Regardless, it's an incredible story of luck and tenacity from an amazing teenager. March 1944 saw 21-year-old Royal Air Force gunner Sergeant Nicholas Stephen Alchemade aboard an Avril Lancaster Mark II of number 115 Squadron. Nicholas was the tail gunner of DS-664, which bore the markings Alpha 4 Kilo, part of an 811 aircraft bomber raid on Berlin. It was to be the last major RAF attack on the city during the war. The formation was made up from 577 Lancasters, 216 Halifax and 18 Mosquitoes. The night would be remembered by many because of a powerful and unforecast wind that blew in from the north which caused many problems for the crews. The bomber stream became badly scattered, and the pathfinder force of mosquitoes, whose job it was to mark the targets, found their indicators were being carried well beyond the intended position to the southwest, and in some cases right out of the city. For Nicholas, the night would be memorable for another very personal reason. Their attack run at around 20,000 feet had gone well, with sky markers plus red and green ground markers in good positions to the east of the city. During the return flight, the wind was affecting navigation even more than before, and many aircraft strayed over flak batteries they'd normally have avoided, some even overflying the Ruhr defences. Fifty of the 72 aircraft lost that night would be destroyed by flak. The remaining 22, including DS-664, fell victim to night fighters. As they headed homeward through the night, they drifted well south of their intended track. They were approaching the small town of Oberkirchen, but a great peril lay ahead as they would soon find themselves in the heavily defended areas of Dortmund, Essen, Düsseldorf and Cologne, but a more immediate threat loomed. A Junkers Ju-88 night fighter had found them. The front of the twin-engined fighter bristled with the mattress aerials of the Liechtenstein radar, but despite the extra drag, they closed on their target until the dark outline of the Lancaster appeared above. When the massive bomber grew large enough, they opened fire with 20mm cannons that ripped open the wings of the target, and fire blossomed out of the crippled bomber. The Lancaster was soon completely ablaze, and as they began to go down, the pilot, 
Flight Sergeant Arthur Newman called them on the intercom. Jump! There was no room in the small tail gunner's position for a parachute, so Nicholas crawled out to grab his from the stowage, only to find that it had already been destroyed by the fire. He crouched in the narrow fuselage, with flames licking around his flying clothes as the Lancaster spiralled down, and he wondered what to do. I had no doubts at all that this was the end of the line, he said years later. The question was whether to stay in the plane and fry, or jump to my death. It only took him a moment to make up his mind. I decided to jump and make a quick, clean end of things. I backed out of the turret and somersaulted away. Sergeant Alchemade jumped out at an estimated height of 18,000 feet, but mercifully he recalls little of his terrifying fall as he blacked out. When he came round, he was lying in a snowdrift under a big fir tree which had mercifully cushioned his impact. He gingerly tested his arms and legs, and to his amazement he could move. The only injury he suffered was a sprained ankle. German troops were searching for survivors from the crashed aircraft, and Nicholas was soon captured and interrogated by the Gestapo, who were, perhaps understandably, suspicious of his claim to have survived the fall until the wreckage was examined. Along with the bodies of the three crew members who failed to escape the doomed aircraft, they found the charred remains of the tail gunner's parachute just where Nicholas said it would be, and they even gave him a letter testifying to the fact. Nicholas soon found himself in Stalag Luft III, a camp famous for its many ingenious escape attempts, two of which were immortalised in films, The Wooden Horse and The Great Escape. His miraculous survival made him something of a celebrity, but he never escaped himself. After the war, he was repatriated to Britain to rejoin Pearl, his sweetheart. Lieutenant Colonel Ivan Chizov was another who survived a remarkable fall, but he was serving a different air force, the Soviet Air Force. He was a navigator in an Aleutian IL-4, tasked to bomb the German forces in 1942. Luftwaffe fighters attacked the formation of bombers, crippling Chizov's aircraft, and he was forced to bail out from a height of around 23,000 feet, as observed by a fellow crewman, Nikolai Zugan, who abandoned the aircraft a little later. Ivan was concerned that, should he open his parachute too early, he would be a sitting duck for the German fighter pilots as he dangled under the canopy, so he planned to wait until he had dropped below the level of the fierce air battle that was going on around him. His plan, however, didn't quite go as he hoped when he lost consciousness during his long fall towards the earth. With his parachute unopened, he landed on the edge of a snowy ravine and then slid, rolled and ploughed his way to the bottom. Watching the air battle overhead was the cavalry commander, General Pavel Alexeyevich Belov, 
who saw Ivan's body fall into the ravine and he promptly dispatched some cavalrymen to recover this brave dead aviator. However, when they reached the spot and dug Chizov out of the snow, they found him badly injured but alive and still wearing his unopened parachute. He had suffered spinal injuries and a broken pelvis, but was operated on and for a month his condition was considered critical. Despite this, Ivan made a full recovery, which he proved by taking to the air again only three months later. He wanted to continue flying combat missions, but was instead sent to become a navigator instructor. After the war, he graduated from the Military Political Academy and on his departure from the reserve, he became a propagandist for the Central House of the Soviet Army. Snap, Crackle, Pop was a B-17 Flying Fortress of the 360th Bomb Squadron, which flew from RAF Molesworth in England during the Second World War. On board was one Alan McGee of Plainfield, New Jersey, whose job it was to man the ball turret mounted on the belly of the bomber. He was picked for this task because of his stature. He stood only five foot six inches in his socks. The 360th had been tasked, along with 84 other bombers and including the Memphis Bell, to attack the U-boat submarine base at Saint-Nazaire. Over their target, the formation encountered heavy flak and at least two squadrons of Luftwaffe fighters and a fierce air battle ensued. We were hit by anti-aircraft guns, but what knocked us out of the sky was a Focke-Wulf FW-190 shooting our wing off, McGee said. The last thing I remember was that I was at 20-some thousand feet trying to get out of a burning plane. McGee had already been wounded when a shell hit his turret, which destroyed the turning mechanism, so he had climbed out, only to discover that his parachute had also been struck and now sported a large hole. As he made his way forward, the B-17 was struck again, with part of the right wing coming away and sending the big aircraft into a spin. He tried to get to the radio man station so that they could bail out together, but without his oxygen supply, he fell unconscious before he could reach him. Tumbling down from over 22,000 feet, McGee was miraculously thrown free from the aircraft as it came apart, and he began a four-mile journey towards the ground. He remembered the sensation of falling, and he thought to himself, I don't wish to die because I know nothing of life. When he came to, he was still alive, but caught up in the steel girders of the Saint-Nazaire railway station roof, whereupon he said, I don't know how I got here, but here I am, thanks to God. His fall had been broken by the glass roof of the station, which shattered under his impact, but he had not escaped without injury. He'd been hit twice before being thrown out of the B-17, but now had 28 shrapnel wounds, a punctured lung and kidney. His nose and one eye had been ripped open. His right arm was nearly severed from his body. He had a broken right leg and ankle and several damaged teeth. 
he was treated by a very capable doctor at the Hermitage Hotel in the town, who did a marvellous job of taking care of his many injuries, and he spent the rest of the war in a prisoner-of-war camp. The people of Saint-Nazaire didn't forget him, though, and fifty years later they erected a six-foot memorial to McGee and the crew of his bomber, a little taller than the man himself. The Guinness World Record for living through a fall without a parachute lies with a Serbian flight attendant, Vesna Volovic, although her remarkable feat of high-altitude survival has been called into question by conspiracy theorists. Some believe that the aircraft she was flying in was shot down at low altitude by a MiG of the Czechoslovak Air Force. However, both Guinness and I am going with the original story, which has Vesna in a DC-9 of JAT, Yugoslav Airlines, at 33,000 feet. After a layover in Stockholm, the flight was staging its way back to Belgrade when a bomb planted in the baggage compartment tore through the aircraft, causing the airliner to break up over Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, on the 26th of January 1972. Vesna remembers nothing of the accident, but it's likely that she remained trapped in part of the fuselage which impacted a heavily wooded, snow-covered mountain which saved her from a violent deceleration. The attack on the flight was believed to have been carried out by Croatian nationalists, but no arrests were ever made. Vesna was amazingly lucky to live through the fall and her subsequent injuries. Indeed, she was the only one from the 28 crew and passengers who survived the ordeal. She was discovered by a villager who'd heard her screaming amid the wreckage. Her turquoise uniform was covered in blood and her long stiletto heels had been torn off by the force of the impact. Her rescuer had been a medic during World War II and he managed to keep Vesna alive until help arrived. She remained in a coma for 27 days and in hospital for 16 months. She was temporarily paralysed from the waist down, but recovered despite suffering a skull fracture and haemorrhage, two broken legs, three broken vertebrae, one of which was crushed, a fractured pelvis and several broken ribs. Afterwards, she continued to work for the airline, but this time she stayed safely on the ground behind a desk. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guide show. You can find us at airlinepilotguide.com. However, if you'd like to help the Plane Tales podcast out, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And if you could let your friends know on social media, well, that'd help too. 